0: This is Nick Redding and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. The first comprehensive research study on the status of heritage trades in the United States has now been published. And on this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Donovan Ripkema from Place Economics about the Historic Trades Labor Study, published by the Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland. Ripkema will take us through the research on how he and his team conducted the study, some surprising key findings about historic trades, and the industry's expected growth over the next decade. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Cast. Today, we're really excited to be sitting down with Donovan Ripkema from Place Economics, um, where he's a principal at this Washington, D.C.-based real estate and economic development consulting firm. And we're going to be talking about uh, a really exciting first-of-its-kind study um, looking at not only the value of historic tradespeople the people who do the work of preservation but also the need for these um over the coming years um and so we've actually done an episode with Donovan once before where we sort of talked about preservation economics in general so you can go back and listen to that one if you want to dive into the basics of preservation but for people who didn't listen or just need a reminder just tell us a little bit about yourself where did you grow up and uh, I suppose the 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 short version of how you ended up doing this really unique work because I know we dive into that in the other episode.
1: Yeah, thanks, Nick, and thanks for having me back. Uh... Well, uh, we, uh, our firm Place Economics is a is a small firm, and all of the work we do is somehow at the intersection of historic preservation and economics. And so, this assignment was was a little expansion of our perspective, and we'll talk about that. But it was a, it was a great thing. Uh, I spent the first half of my life in Rapid City, South Dakota, in the Black Hills, uh, and got involved in historic preservation there first, out of sheer capitalist greed. Uh, I was in the real estate business as an appraiser and small-scale developer, and the first of the historic tax credits came along, and I acquired uh, with borrowed money an old building, uh, fixed it up, got the first tax credits, and there I was.
0: So you you've uh, you've been a believer since you made a made a few bucks off of it. Presumably you made a few bucks off of it. Not every preservation deal ends up that way, as you know. They don't, but the tax credits helped a lot. Yeah, they certainly do. And when we've worked on and the entire preservation community has worked really closely with place economics um, on making the case for both. The state, local, and federal tax credits. Um, and we have whole episodes on the tax credits if people are interested in digging into those. But we're going to talk today about this labor study, which, you know, I, I should, I guess, say in the interest of full disclosure, was. Um, uh, commissioned by the campaign for historic trades which is a national program focused on um, improving and, and expanding historic trades development in the country that is powered by preservation Maryland which also happens to power preserve cast so it's something that we is near and dear to our heart and we're doing this as a part of this national rollout and the press release um, and story going out in the release of this report um, really making the case for this and and we can talk a little bit about why why we're so excited about it and why we felt like it was needed but For those listening who aren't as familiar with this, what were the sort of the parameters of the study? What were you guys sort of charged with looking at? And then we'll get into how you do that work.
1: Well, uh, God bless you. Uh, There was a scope of services that had 92 things in it. It wasn't quite that many, but it was really a very broad and comprehensive uh, set of tasks. Uh, one was to kind of set the baseline data, how many people work in this field, how many historic buildings are there, how many tax credit projects happen each year, both at the federal level and at state level, uh, how many people are working, what are the trades involved in that. So that was kind of the baseline data. The second was to look at individual uh, uh, trades within the historic trades uh, uh uh, realm, and what were the demand for those jobs? How much were they paid? Was there any premium if they had experience in in historic? And then uh, make uh, projections on uh, how many buildings will be added to the national register. What will be the growth in the tax credit? So it was really looking at at what's here now. What are the jobs involved in that? And how are those things going to change over the next decade?
0: And, you know, I I will will say, and there's going to be a question a little bit later on in this conversation about, you know, is this niche? And, And we can answer it then, but... You know, in terms of why we commissioned this, I mean, obviously, through the Campaign for Historic Trades, we're very interested in what the future of trades training looks like and are trying to change that and create actual registered apprenticeships and get community colleges and other training actors involved in picking this up. But one of the things that we keep getting pushback on is Well, this is this is a very narrow thing or people imagine this is like Colonial Williamsburg and there's nothing wrong with Colonial Williamsburg, but we're not really talking about historic trades in terms of, you know, uh, silversmithing and, and rifle making and, and basket weaving, um, which are all very cool. But um, we're talking about the, the the hands required to do rehabilitation work, and I think one of the really cool things in the study, and you can go and get the study. Um, I will mention it'll be a link in the show notes. But if you go to historictrades.org, that website for the campaign, you can find it there. Um, is that you know you really compellingly make the case that it's not just actually about what we consider historic; it's about just fixing old things. Um, and that's a much more expansive sort of look at, at preservation than there has been before, I think. Um, uh,
1: you know, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's there's you can call it a niche if you want, but it's a pretty big damn niche of yeah. people who are uh, working both on rehabilitation of older stuff in general and about 40% of all of the buildings in America are 50 years old or older. That doesn't make every building 50 years old historic, as all of your listeners know, but at least it does say, well, here's some old stuff that we ought to be thinking twice about before we throw it away. Uh, and so the, the the whole area of building rip, uh Rehabilitation is a large labor market, and within that, there's a subset of of those that work on uh, historic rehabilitation uh, that's also significant.
0: So, when you guys go to do a study like this, I presume whether it's a you know an economic impact report on you know on a community or the tax credit or anything like that, you're probably picking up and at least looking to see what literature and other studies are out there. Has there, I mean, people kind of wring their hands and bemoan the fact that there aren't enough tradespeople, but were there other studies or is this really the first comprehensive? I mean, we say it's the first comprehensive, but you guys are the guys who did the work. Is it, is that true?
1: It, it really is true. I mean, I, uh, and we look because we wanted to, you know, if there was existing studies, we'd like to look at those, base those. And there, there were a, there are a handful of, of, uh, PhD and master's thesis that looked at a little piece. There was 25 years ago, there was an issue of the National Park Services CRM magazine that was kind of essays about the historic trades, but in terms of a fundamental data driven analysis of how many people, what do they get paid? Is there a shortage? What are the trades? Uh, there just there wasn't, which has made it so fun for us that this really was kind of the the foundation upon which other people will make analyses in the
0: future. Right. I mean, you think about it that way too, with like historic tax credits. I mean, they build on each other and, and, you know, people kind of use that data and we hearken back here in Maryland to this first study and then a study that came after it and we can kind of track the impact. Um, but it does still surprise me that all these years later, I mean, we always talk about, there's this report in the sixties called the White Hill report that says right. we have this terrible problem with historic tradespeople in the country and we need to fix it. And it's, you know, 60 years later and we're, we're still talking about it, but actually now kind of doing something about it. So let's talk a little bit about the findings here. Um so you know, back to that question about is this niche, is this, is this a small little, just a little thing that as some have suggested, what's the size and scale of these trades and, and how did you define them?
1: Well, uh and I'll I'll Back to the definition question, and that's a that's a challenge. Um, if we if we talk about our best estimate of the people working on historic rehabilitation, so not just all rehabilitation, but historic rehabilitation, that's about one hundred and sixty five thousand jobs. About hundred thousand of those are jobs that uh, could benefit specific heritage trades training. You know, some, some you know gopher at the bottom of the line probably doesn't make any difference if all she's doing is sweeping the floor. But of those hundred and sixty-five thousand, a hundred thousand are those that really need uh, could benefit from from training, expertise, experience in historic preservation. Now you can say, well, is, is that a lot or is that a little? Well, it's it's not. It's it's much smaller than the entire construction industry, which is about nine point eight million workers. But just those. Direct jobs in historic preservation that need the historic scales, that 100,000, that is more than optometrists, traffic controllers, cardiologists, game wardens, and economists all lumped together. So it's not an insignificant uh, group of jobs.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you put it that way because everybody's like, well, uh, you know, everybody needs an optometrist, or, or at least most you and I do. I mean, people can't see yeah. us, but but I, <laughs> I wear glasses, you wear glasses. Uh, so I mean, there's, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting when you put it that way, and and so, um, in order for us to to kind of keep this going, um, not only the the trades themselves, but also understanding all of this. Um, If if it if it's not a small niche portion of the economy, why has it been tracked so poor? Like, so why does it take a report like this to actually suss out these numbers? Well,
1: uh, it's 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 a data issue, data collection issue. Uh, And a couple answers to that question. First of all, in that hundred thousand people. And again, these are direct jobs working on historic preservation that need those skills. So, this is the kind of smallest chunk. That's 100,000 people. Well, but first of all, they're in a bunch of different trades. There's carpentries, masons, plumbers, roofers, full red, a dozen trades or so in that area that need uh, expertise. Uh, and they are, those job titles are tracked in the aggregate. There's numbers for all the plumbers in America. There's just not any subset disaggregated number that says here's the number of plumbers or masons that work on historic buildings so that there's just there's no data so you have to kind of back into those numbers that's that's uh part of it so so those numbers it's not that that hundred thousand doesn't show up any place it just shows up mixed in with a whole bunch of other other things the second issue uh, is a definitional one and that is exactly what counts as historic preservation. Does every building older than 50 years, if they're working on that, does that count as historic preservation? Probably not. Counts as rehabilitation, not historic preservation. So it's it's whittling down exactly what do we mean. Does every project in a National Register Historic District count? Well, what if they did a terrible job? Should we still be counting that? So it's a kind of definitional issue. Uh, and then the other, the really basic one is uh, – the, uh, the the government keeps great numbers on a whole bunch of stuff, and we tap dozens of, of databases. But there is, believe it or not, in all of the construction data that the federal government uh, uh, maintains and publishes, there is no distinction between construction that is new construction and rehabilitation. And that would be the first cut to start sorting out, well, then how – but there is no such number. And you'd think even if somebody didn't give a damn about historic preservation, that the whole – in recent years, the importance of rehabilitating existing buildings for environmental reasons and landfill cost mitigation, all of those, that the federal government would have woken up one day and say, hey, maybe we ought to be sorting those out. Well, they, they don't. Uh, And that then has lots of kind of triggering effects all the way through, including, by the way, as long as I'm talking economic geek stuff, is that all of our numbers probably underestimate the total numbers of jobs because we know uh, uh, systematically they have this greater level of labor intensity in the rehabilitation field than there is in new construction. We know that's the case, and I'll, I'll come back to what we learned in the survey in a minute. Uh, but when the the government just keeps track of you know, construction of hospitals or construction of multifamily homes uh, and it's all lumped together, there is no disaggregation of those numbers to really measure that, uh, that uh, labor intensity. And so then the subsequent Econometric models that are created based originally on federal data uh, miss this labor intensity uh, to a large extent. So what? So whatever numbers we give you, uh, Nick, they are understating the the jobs in the field.
0: It's and it's it's fascinating to Just take preservation out of it, like you said. Even you, if you're looking at it from a sustainability standpoint, or you're looking at it from a preservation of affordable housing standpoint, or just what is the country? What's the picture actually look like of You know, we talk about housing starts, but that's about it. That's as close as you almost get to breaking down those numbers. But you don't talk about housing rehab. So it seems like a huge blind spot um, that the preservation community needs to be pushing on who is that in the federal government that should be doing a better, or at least instructed to do a different job there?
1: Yeah, and it's the Department of Commerce. And here's the deal. If if you go into Baltimore and go down and get a building permit, and that's kind of the source of the data that then floats up to make the federal numbers, but you have to fill out on your building permit. I'm building a new house. I'm rehabilitating my house. You gotta gotta be part of your building permit application. So it's not the numbers don't exist any place. It's just that there's not been the discipline to say, hey, when you send your numbers up, the chain so it ends up at commerce that there's this distinction made huge difference and, and let me give you just a quick quick example about why that's so important you mentioned this issue about affordable housing and uh and the consequences of older stuff there there was a fabulous study that was done a few years ago by a firm which we had done it it's another firm here in washington who looked at all of the uh projects in the around the country that used the low-income housing tax credit and they sorted it 92 different ways, but included in that, they sorted the cost per unit of using the low-income house tax credit for new construction and the cost per unit of rehabilitated, including the acquisition of the building and then rehabilitating. About $50,000 per unit cheaper doing the rehabilitation than doing the new construction. Well, somebody ought to be shouting out then, hey, we ought to be doing more. If you, again, I don't care if you care about preservation at all if you say let's stretch taxpayers dollars with the tax credits and encourage specifically reuse as opposed to building new and you're getting more housing units for the people of modest means by rehabilitating
0: existing buildings yeah it, it again it just it seems like something that's a sort of a no-brainer that we have to do a better job of making sure that those numbers exist And it and in some ways like not to wax uh philosophical here but it's it's sort of like baked into the system is sort of this American, uh, sense of, we're, we're building things. We're, we're always on, always doing something new. And so our data tracks that too. We're not looking backwards. We're not looking at how we fix up and reuse old things. It's about what's new.
1: Right. And, and, and arguably, you know, the, the, the United States is committed to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They have their own environmental levels. Well, you can't be serious about meeting those goals without putting a priority on reusing buildings. And there's no motivation for reusing buildings if there's not evidence of, well, this makes more sense than tearing stuff down and building new.
0: So let's come back to the study here from for a second. So we, we've we kind of talked about the the large picture here. Um, and we've talked about the the scale of of the people involved. Um, when it comes to the federal historic rehab tax credit, or in state tax credits for that matter, how much of these kinds of jobs are directly tied to that? Do we have a sense for that?
1: Yeah, about thirty one thousand uh, a job. The federal tax credit created about thirty one thousand uh, jobs last year. Uh, and and let me make a another kind of geeky distinction is that. Ordinarily, when, uh, when the analysis of job creation from whatever activity, uh, including the great stuff that Rutgers does for the Park Service and lots of our studies that we do on preservation impact, we will talk about direct, indirect, and induced jobs. And distinction is the the person hammering the hammer is a direct job. The clerk at the lumber yard is an indirect job and induced jobs, or I get my paycheck and I go and spend it at the barber. So the barber's an, in, an induced job, but these are only direct jobs. And we've made the conscious decision to do that because this was about the trades. And while that guy at the labor at the, at the lumber yard selling the two before is important job, he or she doesn't. Isn't in the in the heritage trades. And so when we talk about jobs, thirty one thousand direct jobs of people working on the historic buildings through the uh, using the federal tax credit.
0: Right. So it's a little bit of a a harder number than than sort of the other ones that people are familiar with. So, yeah, it's not to confuse that somehow we don't we're not seeing these huge, much bigger job numbers. We are. It's just these are we're specifically talking about tradespeople. Correct. Um, Exactly. But that workforce, and I don't know what data is there on this, that workforce is aging out. I mean, I've seen different studies that suggest that, that the average age of a construction worker, I saw one just recently in, in Massachusetts, you know, 30 years ago, the average age was like 36. And now it's like 48 or something like that. I mean, there's these huge swings. So this sector is aging out, and we have to somehow replace them. That's a big part of the story as well.
1: It is. We need in again just in these heritage trades specifically, experienced, trained heritage people. It's about ten thousand a year that we need for replacement jobs, and that's either people leaving the field or people uh, retiring or whatever. But ten thousand a year after year after year, we have ten thousand job openings in those uh, heritage trades that we got to figure out. And the second part of that is that. The, the people who who do this work and who hire and pay those people, they're willing to pay a premium. A, they see that there's a severe shortage across the trades. Uh, we, I think we included 10 or 12 different categories of trades. All of them saw a high percentage of, of shortages and severe shortages among the people who are out there trying to hire up stonemasons uh and that and when that person has training and experience that there's a premium that they're willing to pay for those people so it's the kind of again you don't have to care about historic preservation if you said people need jobs people need jobs paying a living wage people need trains to do that put those things together and here's a great place to focus efforts to get good jobs living wage jobs earning a premium if they have background training in historic
0: preservation So. Uh- and when you, I think the 100,000, when you talk about people actually working in the field, and as you say, you know, it's a, a, a subset of the larger construction industry. But then when you start thinking about needing 10,000 a year in order to meet the need to keep us sort of that whole industry staffed, that's a huge number. It absolutely is a huge number, yeah. And so when you're talking to making the case – and I'm curious what you would say to, you know, a community college in, you know, wherever it might be, Louisiana, that isn't currently doing this. Um, you know, hopefully pretty soon we'll have some of these registered apprenticeships done. So the federal government is recognizing this as different trade categories, which also should mean they're tracked a little bit better. Um And so now, you know, there's a federal process, there's standards to meet, we're creating an open source curriculum at the campaign as well, so that somebody can pick that up and run with it, they don't have to create their own, and it aligns with these standards. What would be the argument that you would make to that community college for them to pick this up when they say, well, there's, there's all, you know, you only need 10,000 nationally, how many could you possibly need in, you know, this county in Louisiana or this county in Maryland, for that matter. Um, is there what is the what's the compelling case that can be made for that?
1: Well, I think that you're you're taking young men and women who are unemployed or underemployed, giving them a lifetime scale for which there is going to be demand for the foreseeable future. Now, there's lots of kinds of jobs that you're training people for that are going to be obsolete 10 years from now. These are jobs we factually know for the rest of that person's career is going to be demand for that job. And you're taking them and you're putting them in a job that pays an economic premium if they have that set of skills. So I don't know, maybe in that, that county in Louisiana, it's only eight people a year. But think about that. Eight people a year, going year after year, going into the field, getting good jobs and earning a premium for doing so. Seems to me a great case to be made.
0: And, you know, I've also I mean, I'm I'm a, a a geek for your studies. So, I you know, I'm remembering all these different stats and figures from over the years. But one of the ones that I've seen that as we sort of stare into the abyss of a potential recession here in the country is that local historic districts, so communities with a, a high number of historic buildings tend to do better in recessions. They hold their value better. And so that also, to me, and maybe I'm extrapolating too much here, suggests that these sorts of trades positions are going to stick around as well, because you're not, you know, building a new house is very much dependent on the economy. Our, you know, is Toll Brothers going to build 12,000 new homes or going to build 6,000 during a recession? But fixing your windows or keeping a roof on a building is something that kind of happens regardless it's not as tied to interest rates and the and the macro economy so are these are these more sustainable positions in that way too
1: they, they really are so the, and you're, you're right on both counts but it's really two different measures I mean the count is that on property values that it's not that they don't go down in a recession but that the, the The decline is later, shallower, and recovery sooner, but that's on the property value side. But in a number of our studies, we've looked at that narrow issue about what happens to construction activities in historic districts relative to the rest of the city. Again, a much shallower slope shallower decline of activity it, it does a, a huge difference in maintaining jobs in those rehabilitation projects in downtimes and you're right is that maybe it costs me three hundred thousand dollars to build a new house and I don't you know, the bank won't lend me the money so I can't build a new house but maybe I can you know put in a new kitchen for thirty thousand and so I'll do that instead you in know second mortgage or whatever and so it's much less volatile on the downside in historic districts than is the general uh, uh new construction industry.
0: And I think those are important talking points for policymakers and for advocates across the country as we kind of, you know, who knows where this economy is headed. It's kind of been all bouncing around in a really, I mean, it seems like every economy is unique, but this one is is ultra unique because we're still on the sort of the sugar high of a huge federal investment. And when that kind of drops out, you know, when will we have that? And I think it's important that we can be a part of the solution and part of the conversation, that we're not something that's only done in good times, that we're something that sustains communities throughout um, challenging economic times.
1: Well, that's right. And the other thing that's, that's interesting is we charted the projected growth of uh, commercial construction, building construction activity. uh, And as compared to the rate of growth of historic tax credit projects and the curve separates that the rate of growth of tax credit projects were projected to be, in fact, at a greater rate than the growth of the uh, building industry in general.
0: And that's borne out, too. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the numbers where AIA, the American Institute of Architects, is saying that for the first time since they've been tracking the data, 50, I think it was 51 percent of architectural billings were for rehab, not for new build. And so there's a big and if you go back, I think only like a decade, it was like a third of billings was for rehab. So that's a huge I mean, that to me seems like a big sort of red flag that, hey, something is changing in the way that we're handling buildings and our policy needs to catch up with that. Yeah, I'm correct. Yeah. So anything in here that surprised you? I mean you've you've been you've done a lot of these studies so I can't imagine too much is surprising but was there anything that you said wow this is this is something here that we didn't expect to see or that really was a number that kind of popped out at us?
1: Well uh, a couple things and again we did a big national survey uh that accompanied we so you know a lot of this was based on data sets that we looked at but then we did a big na- uh, national survey uh 7 800 respondents so really statistically reliable and we sorted those out among uh who we called the trades experts and those were general contractors subcontractors trade people themselves so that the people that had hands-on so really knew what they're talking about and then we talked about preservation experts uh people might be people like you and i who are in preservation but we don't hammer hammers uh and particularly in the this Uh, the responses of the trades experts, people who are literally writing paychecks or getting a paycheck from these trades, how broadly across the trades they saw a shortage of qualified work people. Uh, A, B, how much they were willing to pay a premium uh, to get experienced uh, 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 people, uh, and how much value that experienced and trained Uh, Heritage trades made to their projects. It increased uh, uh, speed of the work. It reduced the number of mistakes that were made. Uh, It was much better for keeping uh, clients happy, and it was uh, better for kind of the integrity of historic resources. So whether you're kind of a preservationist, only caring about you know authenticity or you're a uh, homeowner saying I want the work done right or you're the general contractor saying I don't want to have to pay to do stuff twice that uh, it huge difference that people trained and experienced in in heritage trades make to those projects
0: yeah it's just a, this is a critical piece of the whole puzzle for the campaign putting together I'm excited to to release this to everybody because You know, you've got these apprenticeships coming online, the curriculum that we're developing, but we need to be able to make the case to people out there, policymakers and others, that you should be engaging in this work. And this is this is our one of the best pieces we have in the arsenal. And it's going to be available to any group across the country who wants to pick it up and use it. And it can be you know, there's some good state level data, but also you can extrapolate that federal data to what's happening in your backyard. Or you can hire Donovan in uh, yeah. place economics to do a similar study for your community. I'm sure that they'd be interested in that. Speaking of which, what are you, you don't have to betray any confidences, but what are you working on now? Anything cool that we should be looking out for on the economic front?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, actually, we're finishing up a, a phase two of a, a project in Calgary, Alberta, that is a set of tools for their heritage buildings comm- in commercial areas. We're just about to start a project in Phoenix, again, a phase two that's a It's also kind of policy recommendation for incentives, tools, policy strategies. Uh, We're in the early stages of analysis of the Illinois uh, tax credit, uh, state tax credit. We're doing a project for a, a, a second time, a project for a wonderful nonprofit developer in Louisiana, Gulf Coast Housing Partnership, who use a lot of historic buildings in their kind of commercial revitalization and affordable housing efforts. And uh, I'm doing a, a, a virtual course for UNESCO in Bangkok on use of public-private partnerships for heritage buildings. So we try to keep going in a bunch of directions at once.
0: From, from Alberta to Bangkok, um, that could be your guy's tagline. There you uh, go. So well, this has been really fun, and, and always uh, a pleasure to talk with you. Um, we'll have to have somebody on from Place Economics regularly to update us on the latest the latest stats and figures. Um, and you know, as the as the policy and political landscape shifts, it's important for us to meet all the new players and and let them know um, that this is is not a niche issue, and that um, there's there's good jobs to be had um, in this preservation economy. So thanks so much for joining us today, Donovan. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland. and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.